This is The Guardian. Nanu, zwei noch nie dagewesene edle Geschöpfe. Jetzt müssen wir nur den richtigen Moment abwarten. Willkommen bei McDonald's. Ihre Bestellung bitte. Probier jetzt den Hamburger Real Barbecue Bacon und den Hamburger Real Smoky. Nur bei McDonald's. In allen teilnehmenden Restaurants nicht zu unseren Frühstückszeiten. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Three games, three home wins for the sides in the top four. Liverpool finally find an attacking right back with great distribution. Connor Bradley's first goal and two assists makes you wonder when he'll be pushed into midfield and if there's time for Gareth to get him on that plane. Meanwhile, Darwin Nunes' stats are incredible and very incredibly, whether you're Troy Townsend or the rest of us hitting the woodwork four times, a new Premier League record. In North London, Spurs turn it on for 10 minutes just after half-time and that's enough to beat a dogged and Mopay-led S-Housery master class from Brentford, just what the ownership rules on goal celebrations, and then Man City swap Burnley aside, Kevin De Bruyne's lovely free kick to set up Alvarez for the pick of the goals, then some AFCON, some Asia Cup, a Premier League preview, the disrespect of eating a sandwich in front of someone, your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendening, welcome. Hello, Max. I suspect our Northern Iron listeners may have something to say about you putting Connor Bradley on Gareth Southgate's plane. I, but I did wonder how early that would. I, I wonder how long I could stretch that out before I said, "I do know this. Don't yell at us." Um, yes, thirteen caps for Northern Ireland. It's, it's okay. Don't shout. Uh, Paul Watson. Hello. Hi. And uh, in the Cote d'Ivoire, Jonathan Wilson. Hello. Morning, Hayden. Very good, thank you. Uh, let's start Anfield then. Liverpool four, Chelsea one. Just such a comprehensive victory, Barry. I mean, it felt like a, it is a cliche to say, a message to Manchester City and and the rest of the league that, that they could be the second ever Invincibles if they get that replay at Spurs eventually. Yeah, it was, I suppose, a statement win, wasn't it? Uh, after seven consecutive draws with Chelsea. I think they'd have beaten anyone with that performance, Uh Chelsea happened to be the Stooges on the night. Um, Petrovic was Chelsea's best player, the goalkeeper. Liverpool scored four, hit the woodwork four times. And like yourself, <laughs> all I could think about was Troy Townsend going, <laughs> oh, another shot on target. Um, Chelsea were outpressed, outfought, outclassed, smothered into submission you know, for 90 minutes, suffocated to death couple of decisions went against them I think only the most churlish Chelsea fan and then there are quite a few of them about would lay the blame for this defeat at the door of the referee they probably could have had two penalties definitely should have had one but I don't think it would have made the slightest bit of difference they were second best by, by a distance and, and it was a brilliant performance by Liverpool probably their best of the season although I can only remember the last two or three so it might not be yeah, I, I'm, it'd be a fun documentary to find the most churlish Chelsea fan, wouldn't it? I mean, almost <laughs> churlish football fan from all clubs. Um, Adam says, will Trent ever get back in the team? Um, Connor Bradley, Paul, I mean, a dream game for him. He's 20. He does have 13 caps for Northern Ireland. So uh, the people tweeting, Gareth, come on, get him in at right back. It is too late. His first goal, he got two assists. That cross for Soberslai was brilliant. And, and yeah. it's just... What, ama- what amazing to have these guys from your academy. 
Yeah, I mean, he has no right to be as good as he is. That's absolutely astonishing performance for a 20-year-old. Um, but also a huge amount of credit to to Klopp for putting him in. I mean, a lot a lot of managers wouldn't thrust him in the way that he has. And, and um, yeah, he's looked every bit good enough to do it. And, um, yeah, what, what a game for him. It was the kind of game you'd draw up as a kid in the playground as your kind of, like, your, your dream. Um I, I got to say, his goal was so brilliantly taken as well. There, there are questions over how he got that much space, but it was, yeah, fantastic finish. And his distribution. I mean, it, it seems ridiculous, Wilson, to, to compare him to to Trent. But here you have another fullback who's great going forward, who actually looks really good defensively, but whose distribution is is marvellous. We, well, we live in the golden age of right-backs, don't we? For a long time, if you had a, a, a fullback who was good on the ball, it tended to be a left-back. Uh, if you think, you know, Paquetti, I guess, is the, or Marcelini or, or uh, Milton Santos, are sort of the big three who pioneered that in, in the 60s. I'm, I'm waiting for you to mention a footballer that I've actually heard of, but, I'll, but carry on. <laughs> I thought you said Mussolini. I, I heard Mussolini and I was like, well, I'm known right winger there, yeah. <laughs> Marcelini. Silvio Marcelini, the Argentinian. Ah, I got you. <laughs> so I, I think it was Gianluca Vialli who had the theory that the right back was always the worst player in the team because if you were. Uh, if you were right foot, so left, left footed players, because there's a few of them, they tended to be left alone. But if you were right footed and were good at defending, you'd be moved into the middle of the defence. If you were right footed and actually good on the ball, you'd be moved into midfield. So the right back was just a bloke who was left. Uh, but that's clearly not true anymore. Um, and it probably hasn't been true for 20, 25 years. But yeah, we, yeah this, this, I mean, England particularly, or, or, or sort of the Premier League, has, has so many gifted right backs. Uh, and yeah, I mean, um, I guess. Maybe this is the moment when Alexander Arnold makes that full full leap into midfield, and maybe he is the holding midfield that Liverpool appears to be slightly short of. Yeah, I just like the idea that you know Trent get moved into midfield for Conor Bradley, who then gets moved into midfield for Joe Gomez, who then gets moved into midfield. Is eventually your midfield has got twenty five people in all former right backs. Um, Matthew says, is there a more box office footballer in the Premier League than Darwin Nunez? He hit the woodwork four times in this game, Barry, which is a, a Premier League record. I think he's hit it nine times in the Premier League. I'm, I'm sure I saw 12 somewhere. But anyway, he's hit the woodwork more than any other player by a country mile. As far as I know, on match of the day, they they said 12 times. I, don't, I presume that's Premier yeah, that's League only. And then there were a number of players beneath him all on four. To be fair to him, a couple of those shots yesterday were, were helped onto the woodwork by uh, Petrovic in goal for Chelsea. So they were on target. And yeah, he's he's massively entertaining. He uh, set up one, if not two, goals, mm-hmm. and the goals will come for him. Um, you know, he's he's scored quite a few. They will come, and if as as Troy says, he's hitting the target, then I, I don't think it's a source of cause for concern, especially if Liverpool have players who. Are, will get the goals he isn't getting. There is, there is an extraordinary stat about Nunez that if you look at um, non-penalty goals minus XG, so that's sort of a, a measure of how efficient a striker is, of 528 players who've had a shot in the Premier League this season, he ranks 525th. Uh, so the only three below him are Nicholas Jackson, uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, and... That Ukrainian midfielder, a 19-year-old kid at Brentford, whose name I'm afraid I've forgotten. Hang on. Yehor Yamolyuk. Uh, he's only ever started four games of his career and has never scored a goal. 
but he clearly, you know, which makes him sound like some kind of joke figure who just can, can never score. But he's got, what, seven goals, I think, this season in the league. And, you know, clearly caused enormous amounts of damage. So despite, that's really a measure of how many chances he creates rather than how many he, he sort of wastes. Yeah, I mean, that's the point, Paul, isn't it? He is a, he's actually really crucial to this team. And Klopp afterwards was saying, you know, look, the goals will come. This happens to great centre forwards. You know, it takes time sometimes. But like, he is incredibly effective, but also like humorously entertaining. Like every time he kept hitting the post and like a couple of the penalty in the header were just so like really hammering the woodwork. Like he was saying, like, I'm really going to hit the post here. Like I'm going to make it <laughs> clang and, and judder. And you just think this is... Like, if you're a Liverpool fan, how brilliant. Because you're still five points up of the league and you've got this guy that will give you so much entertainment. Yeah, it's not it's not a bad position to be in if you're a Liverpool fan. I, I love watching him play. Like, I, I think he's brilliant entertainment. The the penalty made me laugh out loud. It was just the, <laughs> the, the precision with which he hit the post. <laughs> yeah, it would be so much harder to hit the post as regularly as he does than to just score. So I, I have a huge amount of time for him as a player. And I, I think there is this thing of like, well, what if it suddenly does start to fall for him? Um, I think I'll enjoy watching him a lot less when it does, to be honest. He he had more shots in the opening 15 minutes than Chelsea had in the entire game. But also like he's, he is, he's just like measurably more entertaining, Barry, than, than Jota is even though Jotter is like ruthlessly efficient and like, and, and utterly brilliant. And like since Salah has been away, has scored six, has been involved in 15 goals in the last eight, like such a brilliant footballer. But like, if you had a choice, you know, you would just, you'd get rid of Jotter straight away if it was between the two. Well, I don't know. It depends what you're after. <laughs> well, if you're after entertainment, if you're a neutral, yes. It's a good oh point. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I mean, um, the, the goal Jota got last night was, I mean, the defending was just appalling from, I think it was Baddy Shilly who was, had a bit of a nightmare and, and Thiago Silva who, uh, I'm afraid he's not looking up to it anymore, is he? And there was a bit of controversy about that. Was it a handball? I don't think so. Um, and, I mean, it hit his hand, but I'm not sure the goal should have been disallowed and it wasn't. Interestingly, actually, if, uh, if we'd had no VAR in that game last night, uh, it would have panned out much the same. All the on-field decisions that were given stood. But, um, yeah, for efficiency, Jota every time, um, for for entertainment. And, and, you know, that's why we watch football, isn't it? Uh, we want Darwin. We do. Jono says, has anyone asked if Chelsea should strengthen the January transfer window yet? Still such a... So a fascinating setup, Wilson. Um, Kieran Maguire tweeting: They have fourteen players whose contracts do not expire until the next decade. Um, you know, they had moments in this game, and Kunku does look good. You think it will come good for him? He should have had a penalty. I mean, it was it was a it was a terrible night for the Liverpool Paul Tierney conspiracy theorists. But still, and look, Liverpool were great, as Barry said, they would have beaten anyone yesterday. But it is still. It's still such a messed up work in progress, this Chelsea team. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've taken a squad that... I mean, they won the Champions League, what, uh, three seasons ago. So it was not like it was a nonsense squad. They've ripped it apart. They've brought in loads of kids where there's, there's always going to be uncertainty. Um, and by essentially having loads of kids and then Thiago Silva, they're like their granddad, 
you know, they, they haven't really got anybody there to learn from, to give them stability. And you've seen Nicholas Jackson's confidence, Mikhail Budrick's confidence. I fear after last night, Badia Shield's confidence have really gone. Uh, and in a normal world, an 18-year-old, 19-year-old's confidence goes, well, you leave him out the team for a month, you bring him back in, you give him a couple of sub-appearances. But you can't do that because all they've got is those young players. So I, I think there is slowly signs of, of, of a team coalescing that, that, that Pochettino is getting something together. I think they're still desperately short of a, of a proper centre-forward. I think they need a, a centre-back. It's astonishing to have done, to have spent a billion pounds and still have what, what is essentially a mess. And the problem now is that these young players who should be, you, know, you think of a young player as an asset that's appreciating in value that you can then potentially sell on, they're now potentially a drain on resources because they're all on contracts till the next millennium. Yes, and um, when you put it like that, it is. I, I guess the question is like, how long? Chelsea, Chelsea aren't no, notoriously patient, and it feels like the only way to test if this works is to give it two, three, four years to let these players mature and work together, and then suddenly you have this all-conquering football team. But that presupposes that no other team does anything, you know, that, that doesn't do any sort of planning either and, and just lets this team evolve. I think you're quite right. I think what they need is time and what they need is stability. And they've never tested those two things out for, for God knows how long at Chelsea. It, it's, it reminds me a little bit of like, you know how with the, the underground system in London, they always say like, the problem is making changes is almost impossible. Like it's so rotten it's so sort of melted together and everyone's patched it together over years that it's actually easier to start from scratch and they've kind of got that at Chelsea like you you kind of have to let this thing evolve because it's it's a series of bad decisions and a series of sort of sort of series of individual decisions that have been made without any clear strategy for so long that it's going to take a really long time to then work this through to something that makes any kind of sense and I, I think you're right I think it just needs time and it needs the same manager and it needs some sort of thought behind the, the transfers in relation to each other. And whether they can do that, I, I'm not sure. That's some vintage Duncan Alexander. Mikhail Mudrick's two Premier League appearances at Anfield have seen him marked by a player who made his first Premier League start in 2003, James Milner, and a player who was born in 2003, Connor Bradley. Um, uh, let's go to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Uh, Spurs 3, Brentford 2. Barry, not so much a game of two halves as a a game of three bits, I thought. I like Brentford so much better in the first half. Counter-attacking, winding Spurs up. Spurs had 10 minutes where they just blew Brentford away and then Brentford kind of had the best of the rest of it. But but that 10 minutes was enough for Tottenham. Um, so not quite a game of three thirds either. No. Uh, no. Uh, two fifths, one fifths, two fifths. <laughs> Something like that. Almost. Yeah, I think you pretty much summed it up well there. Um Spurs were very poor in the first half, trying to do everything through the middle and, and weren't having much luck trying to thread the ball through uh, little narrow gaps. And then they were also, yeah, I mean, Neil Maupay was in full wind-up merchant mode. Brentford were trying to waste time. Spurs were bickering with each other, the Brentford players and the referee, and, and I guess that's what Brentford wanted them to do. After Mopé scored the opener for Brentford, he and Tony did the decided to rip the piss out of James Madison, which I think wasn't probably their greatest idea to go uh, that soon with the, what, that particular wind-up. My close personal friend, Ethan Pinnock, nearly scored with an incredibly audacious back-heel effort, 
which, you know, who knows what might have happened if that had gone in. And then, yeah, Spurs just blew them away in a, a nine-minute period not long after the second half. It was a really good game, actually, a really good game of football, and I think Spurs deserved to win in the end, although Shanda Baptiste missed a great opportunity to, to rescue a point for Brentford in, in injury time. Paul, what an, what an odd game for Destiny Doggy. Scored one, key role in Tottenham's two of Spurs, Really key role in Brentford's opener and set up Brentford's second. So like he he really he was he had massive goal in his goal involvements numbers are huge for this game. Yeah, it was absolutely incredible. And I think the goal, the Ivan Tony goal, uh, it defies belief. If you it's it really reminded me of like Sunday League sort of football where he obviously I mean I don't know why he was there in the first place, but Udogi obviously he didn't know that he was there, but but played this pass that it, it was just it defies belief yeah obviously I imagine most people have seen it but it's a moment of football that I don't think I've ever seen at that level a goal conceded in that way I, yeah I think Tony had got a knock and was so sort of wasn't was slow in coming back and so then a doggy just sort of like passes it back to Vicario and this is a really funny moment where Vicario was stood right next to Tony and he's like pointing away <laughs> from him going no thanks I don't need this and you wonder actually if Vicario would be better off just flying into the ball but yeah it was it was a, it was it was hilarious um yeah i i don't know i mean it was a, i think it was baz like Ange did make two changes at half time he bought on hoiberg which i thought was really smart because tottenham needed to bring a shit house on to just to just like counteract what brentford had been doing so brilliantly in the first half yeah he brought on hoiberg and johnson for skip and bentoncourt Kulisevsky went to the centre of the pitch and it reaped immediate rewards. Um, I, I I watched the first half of this game live, then I watched Chelsea-Liverpool and then I watched the second half on match of the day. And I'm pretty sure Brennan Johnson seems to think he scored Tottenham's first goal. <laughs> so I'm not sure if he knows they won. <laughs> because... <laughs> I'm pretty sure in his post-match interview he said it was great to come on and score our opener. I'm going, no, you didn't. Uh, I, yeah, I, I need to rewind that. and just. Would, did I imagine it? Or, or did, does uh, Brendan Johnson think Spurs drew that game too all? I'm, I'm not sure. You're right. On, on, on Neil Mopé, um, who was just absolutely... He's such... Cause, like, we've seen off the pitch, right? He does wonderful things. He did this wonderful thing where he met... Um, uh, like a kid with um, uh, learning difficulties and spent all day with him and he said, look, I'll do this celebration. And then he celebrated, did the celebration that the kid wanted. I, I hope that wasn't when he was at Everton because the kid's probably long <laughs> grown up. <laughs> kids <it's a> kid. <laughs> kids like, married with five kids. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 but he's such an, he's just, he's so annoying. Especially when he's playing against your team. But, uh, you know, that celebration... I mean, it's kind of funny, isn't it? As seemingly teams are copying goal celebrations, says Ian, should each club have a quota of registered celebrations only they can use? But during two nominated windows per season, they can be traded. Sebo says, Neil Mopé scores an average of 0.03 goals a game this season. Whilst I'm sure we're all very happy to see him scoring, can he really afford to be wasting his precious goals this season on someone else's celebration? Um, James Madison uh, said to him, I, you haven't scored enough goals to have your own celebrations. Uh, Neil Mopé just went a bit, Two-footed when 
I did go too early with that celebration, but I've scored more goals and had fewer relegations than you, James Madison. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, very, very funny. Um, on the back heel, Sam says, how excited did Barry get when Ethan Pinnock tried that back heel? Sal, how close was Ethan Pinnock to the uncontested goal of the season in late January? Charlie, Ethan Pinnock's back heel made me think about Barry Glendening and his jet black hair. People are influenced by, but just by you and your non-graying locks as soon as Ethan Pinnock does something. I mean, I did think I thought of you, obviously, when he tried that. I guess from a, from a Tottenham point of view, Wilson, they're, they're now into the top four you sort of sense that that is their aim, right? Top four. Andrew was quite bullish. I think the moose from TalkSport said, look, you're not going to win a trophy this year. And uh, Andrew went, oh, we're not going to win the title, are we, mate? And, you know, moose got a bit flustered, but he's probably right. They've got quite a nice fixture list for a a month or two now. They're in fourth. So what, three points behind Arsenal and City. Uh, City have played, uh, have got a game in hand. They are eight points behind Liverpool. What's the limit for them this season, do you think? I mean, they're not going to win the title, so get in the Champions League. That's, I mean, you know, at the start of the season, if you'd said Champions League, they'd, they'd have been quite happy with that, surely. So, yeah, finish top four, guarantee yourself Champions League and, and see what you can do in the summer and then move on. Meanwhile, Brentford, five away defeats in a row, Baz. Um, Thomas Frank said he's not worried. They did play quite well in this game. They've got a pretty tough run of games. I think they've got City at home, Wolves away, Liverpool at home, City away again. And then, so that is that's not a nice run. And then West Ham away, Chelsea home, and Arsenal away. After that, West Ham away, Chelsea home are tough. I'm going to say other opinions are available. Um, I wouldn't worry about Brentford. I'd say there'll comfortably be three teams worse than them, with or without points deductions. And you know they did play well last night. Well, for a while anyway. Uh, so I I wouldn't have any fears for them at all. Yeah. I suppose the interesting thing about Luton's resurgence is actually you can now look up, you know, we, we consider Sheffield United and Burnley are gone and we'll get on to Burnley in just a second. But, you know, Everton on 18 points in 18th place, Fulham in 12th on 25, there's only seven points difference. So anyone from Fulham down is still, you know, a bad runaway from getting sucked in to that maelstrom. Anyway, um, we'll... Um, just one, one yes. thing about Spurs. Um, Richarlison now, he scored seven goals, seven games. Does, does he keep his place? Does Son get back in? What happens when, when Sonny gets back from the Asian Cup? Good question. Because actually, we haven't mentioned Timo Werner, who was really key in this game. Like, Yeah, like and him I, and I doggy... thought he was quite key in the City game as well, if his teammates had actually picked out any of his runs or well he could have been key he was making lots of good runs and they were either not spotted or ignored and I thought he was good again last night too so yeah good question don't know the answer um that'll do for part one we'll do City Burnley in a Premier League preview in part two Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, tenth win in 11 for City. They beat Burnley 3-1. Pretty predictable. Julian Alvarez scored two. The second, Paul, that free kick from De Bruyne. I don't I don't know if anyone perfectly weights passes like Kevin De Bruyne does. No, it's, it was something to watch, isn't it? There's a, you're right. There's a De Bruyne thing that he does, which it's really hard to think of someone else who can match that. Absolutely beautiful to watch. The rest of the game... 
sort of a, a inevitability about it, really. But um, nice to see Burnley scored. I saw a few Burnley fans saying, you know, that's the win there. <laughs> we got a goal away to Man City. But yeah, one of those games that you kind of have to have. But um, on the other hand, when there's other games on, it's fair to say that I may not have watched a huge amount of it. <laughs> yeah, I think, I guess City fans might get frustrated, Wilson, that that, that happens when a regulation home win for City doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people. A more interesting question is, who would you put as favourites for the title now between them and Liverpool? I'd still say City, but I mean, the the, the thing in Liverpool's favour, I mean, they've obviously got the like, five-point lead with having played a game more, so two-point lead, let's call it. But they do have to play City at Anfield, I think it's the 9th of March, that game, or that, that weekend anyway, that second weekend in March. So that game now looks key. If Liverpool would win that, then I think you'd probably say they're favourites, but you just assume that City, now that De Bruyne is back, Holland's coming back, when John Stones gets back to full fitness, you assume they'll put together one of those runs in, in spring like, like they always do. So they've got, they've got a really tough March. City's March is hard, but up until March, the next month, February is quite easy for them. Uh, but March, I think, will determine whether they run away with it or whether it's still tight at the end of the season. Yeah, that March is the Manchester derby, Game in the Champions League against Copenhagen, Liverpool away, Brighton away, Arsenal at home. So you're right, that is a uh, that is a fascinating month for Manchester City, isn't it? Um, um, Nicholas says his company doing the worst management job in the Premier League. Spent a hundred million, absolutely hopeless defensively, not competing in games at all. Most fans don't want him sacked, and I agree. But his decisions and transfers have been baffling. It has been abysmal this season. Um, Barry, is he doing the worst job in the Premier League? Uh, I suspect Chris Wilder might give him a run for his money, but it's unfair to judge him after uh, comparatively few games. I I would say company maybe or, or Roy Hodgson, but I I did expect more from Burnley. I thought they would finish sort of mid to you know between tenth and fifteenth or sixteenth, and they. It's just so easy to beat them. Um, and look, obviously, no one expected them to do anything against City, but uh, and this very little of this is Vincent Company's fault. But in their last 13 meetings, City have won by an aggregate score of 46 2. So, um, uh, look, if Burnley fans are happy enough to have him around, fine, but. They're just too easy to beat. Wouldn't it have been great if it had been 12 nil-nil draws? And then <laughs> while, while we're on Chris Wilder, Barry, Ian says, have you or anyone on the podcast ever disrespected someone by eating a sandwich? What kind of etiquette could the official have displayed? Stand to attention and, <laughs> and hold the sandwich to his chest as though saluting a funeral procession. This is off the back of Chris Wilder, who Barry rightly called out on Monday for criticising referees who was very upset after the Palace game midweek. And he said, uh, this is a quote. I'm, I, apparently, this is a direct quote. I can't believe this isn't parody, but it is. I'm not just going to go under the radar and not say anything. I've been to see the referee and I've told him that. One of the assistants was eating a sandwich at the time, which I thought was a complete lack of respect. Hopefully he enjoyed his sandwich while he was talking to a Premier League manager. <laughs> this... Well, this incredibly inflated sense of, of the position of a Premier League manager that no one can eat in front of him. And the idea that maybe the referees didn't know that Chris Wilder was 
going to chance upon them while he opened his sandwich? Should he have put his sandwich away? Should have dashed it to the floor. He should have chucked it on the floor and stamped on it, surely. <laughs> Straight away. <laughs> what do you... It's an amazing quote, isn't it, Baz? I'm like you. I, I don't particularly want to comment on it because I can't believe <laughs> it's real. <laughs> and, it can't you know, be real. It, it, it's come from some parody account. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't be Chris Wilder's biggest fan, but I'd, I'd have him down as kind of a man of the people who, who wouldn't have such enormous self-regard. <laughs> Um, and you know, I don't think he's going to be a Premier League manager for much longer. So, I suppose maybe he wants to maximise the reverence that is paid his way uh, <laughs> while he's still a Premier League manager. He was warned that every fifty-fifty decision would go against them. Uh, he said he confronted. Sorry, war- warned by whom? Well, I don't know. I'll get to that. He con- he confronted. Tony Harrington, the referee, after the game to discuss his performance and revealed how one of the assistant referees was eating a sandwich during the conversation. It doesn't seem too, it doesn't seem too big a crime, Paul, to me. I don't know. It's not even the most disrespectful thing for him to be eating. What if he was like slurping down a soup or like um, cracking open oysters or like it feels like a sandwich is quite innocuous. Um, but I would definitely test this out. If I'm dealing with Wilder now, Every time he comes into the restroom, I'm going to be eating a tiramisu or I'm going to be like flambéing <laughs> something over. I'm going to have a little... Um, <laughs> a chocolate fountain. A, a chocolate fountain. <laughs> it's very hard to look dignified when you're... Well, I, I certainly find it hard to look dignified if I'm eating, say, spaghetti bolognese in public. So, you know, it's all dripping down my chin and I can't twirl the spaghetti properly. So, yeah, I'd, I'd go with spag ball. Um Well, Chris Wilder said, I was told by a Premier League referee who I've known for a long time and who's as honest as the day is long. He said, get ready because every tight decision will go against you. He said, every 50-50 will go against you. We had two bookings in the first half of the game, but they weren't bookings. They were just a coming together. Their boy absolutely takes our goalkeeper out. We have to change goalkeepers and the boy doesn't get booked. He said it was an accident. He clashed. It makes no odds if it's an accident or it's not an accident. It's a yellow card. We talked with Howard Webb about speeding the game up and making sure that referees have got a grip on that and he could hear the frustration for the supporters. He could see our frustration from our players. Anyway. I mean, what what, what happens when Chris Wilder walks into the, the canteen at the training ground? At Does everyone just down their cutlery and <laughs> stand to attention? I don't, I don't know. I remember at school, like, if you had packed lunch, you were still meant to go to like the dining hall to eat it. But obviously nobody could be bothered, so you'd eat it in the classroom. But like, so if a teacher then came into the classroom at lunchtime, everybody would be like desperately hiding sandwiches under the desk. So is that what assistant referee is going to be like now? So pretending that, that you know, they're not actually sort of, you know, chewing in a subtle way, they can't, they can't sort of see the mouthful is finishing off while clutching a baguette under the desk. I mean, I would say it's disrespectful of the referee's assistant to be eating a sandwich while the game is taking place. I, I, think <laughs> yeah. that is the, I don't think he should you know, just open his, like, his prep you know, he's got an early prep Christmas sandwich and he's just going for that. I think that is disrespectful. But if he's just in the room and Chris Wilder has burst in. <laughs> do you think opposing coaches should start eating sandwiches when they're playing Sheffield United? Like Jason Tindall eating a, you know, a Subway kind of... Meatball marinara. <laughs> yeah. You yeah, know that's totally. what Mopay would do right now, wouldn't it? Mopay <laughs> yeah, in this situation. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, West Ham played Bournemouth and Wolves played Manchester United tonight. One thing... Um, I, I 
I'm not sure we've discussed Marcus Rashford enough because right, Ten Hag says my, my thing with the Marcus Rashford night out or two nights out is just how re- bleak his fun is. You know, it's, it seems to surrounded by hangers on, horsing back tequilas, which I mean, oh God. That's foul. I mean, I, do we know? Um, do we know he was horsing back tequilas? I didn't know that was part. Were his? I think between them, the the son and the athletic have given an account of his, what he was wearing, uh, who he was with, what jewelry he had on, the fact that he was paying for everything with cash out of a duffel bag, and. Uh, <laughs> Just uh, sorry, hang on, hang on, hang on, Barry, hang on. Like the last time I came to your pub, like not not for your birthday, but like just for a night out. A, your pub you have to pay with cash, and B, we definitely horseback tequilas at about three a.m. because I was in a terrible, terrible mess the next day. Oh, well, I think you might have horseback tequila. I'm physically incapable of horsing back tequila, but it, it's it's just this rich young athlete goes out surrounded by. Maybe there is friends, I don't know. It uh, doesn't sound like they are. And then he's he's hiring a section of a restaurant and, and no one else is allowed in. And then any invited guests have to hand over their phones. Like, who, who does he think he is? Or Again, is this is exactly the same as your pub. Exactly the same protocols. Do you know, do you know what I would say? I would say that... that it just sounds really it, grim. Well, it does sound grim, but I think it, it is impossible to... to. I can understand why elite footballers as famous as Rashford say, look, can you all put your phones away? Because if this gets out, it's got out, right? And it's terrible. And he just wants to have fun. And I agree with you. He shouldn't be going to nightclubs the day before a game or two games before a game. It just seems mad. I think, I, I think another thing that's interesting with Rashford is because he was like so amazing in the pandemic and because he did so much for so many i think that i think suddenly you develop this really binary view of football so you think oh here is someone who is super mature who is really like has no flaws he's he can do everything off the pitch he can help these people and he can be a brilliant footballer and just life isn't as simple as that right so you can be totally flawed and be really a really talented footballer and also help people, other people in society. All these things are possible, but we sort of built Rashford up to be this sort of, sort of almost like a messiah, right? And so, when he makes a mistake, it is a, a bigger deal than. So, are, are you saying he's not the messiah? He's a very naughty boy. <laughs> yes, I basically am. <laughs> no, I, I, to be clear, Max, I, I don't really care what he does in his leisure time. It's not a good look to be going out on the piss. Uh, the day before training, the day before a or a couple of days before a game, but um, I, I just hope he's all right because he seems yeah. to be surrounded by bad people and yeah, I, that that blow by blow account it, it wasn't a fun night out. It sounded awful, uh, just, but also yeah. it's a real insight into um, how grim it would be to actually be famous, right? I, that's what I think. It just we're just so terrible if you couldn't go and get a coffee without people bothering you or go and I mean obviously I am completely like i can't go anywhere but i I managed to keep my feet on the ground but like, actually that that existence would be just terrible as is what i think like and no money in the world would make it worth it in terms of a premier league preview i guess brighton palace both sides struggling 
is interesting given their rivalry. And Arsenal-Liverpool-Paul is an absolute standout fixture in, in what's one of those Premier League fixture lists where you look at it and go, I thought the Premier League was great and none of these fixtures seem really interesting at all. <laughs> I wondered how much of that um, just comes from, from working in football. I often look at the fixture list and I'm like, oh, OK. <laughs> yeah. This doesn't, doesn't excite me in the way that I expect. But yeah, um, yeah, it's going to be absolutely huge game Arsenal Liverpool obviously massive game yeah it's not a particularly inspiring set of fixtures there are some fixtures that I swear come up more often than others and I know this is factually untrue I, I don't need people necessarily writing in to, to prove that every team plays each other twice but for example Burnley Man City I think they play that four or five times a season um, <laughs> I do always get this certain fixtures I look at them and go no I I don't and, and not just because they've played in the cup or something I, I'm aware of that also but um, yeah Every now and again, you look at the fixtures and think, again? <laughs> Trash says, with the January transfer window being hilariously quiet amid some serious belt tightening, should we worry that Fabrizio Romano might soon be out of a job? Will he be reduced to doing cameo videos for a tenor, uh, a pop, or bingo night shouting, here we go, as the tombola spins? Um, what have you made of this window, Wilson? But wasn't Fabrizio Romano doing um, some live gig at Hammersmith Apollo? I think I saw that advertised on the tube just before Christmas. Yeah, I think so. So yeah. I, I, I think he's doing all right for himself. I wouldn't yeah, worry about him. I think him. he's okay. Um, and well, it is interesting that everybody's belt tightening. And I think it suggests that people are taking uh, the profit sustainability regulations very seriously. And and that's sort of the, the, the background factor here, isn't it? That I mean, it's, it's obviously easy for them to say now, but I think people at Leicester blame their relegation on the fact that they suddenly were sort of, ah, oh, hang on, are we are we in trouble here? We better we better not buy anybody. We better sell a couple, and and as a result had a weaker squad, and as a result went down. Um, I think Wolves went through a similar process, and and that was one of the reasons Lopetegui left in the in the summer. And I, I think other teams now are sort of seeing what's happened to Everton, the fact that Everton and Forest have charges, the fact that there's ongoing investigations in the city and Chelsea. And and sort of thinking, oh God, we, we actually do have to be careful. And that, I guess, is the problem when it's retrospective. That in Spain, you have your budget for the season and, and everybody knows what that is in advance. Whereas this is something that can sneak up. Uh, because I guess you don't exactly know what your income is going to be because you don't know where you're going to get to in the cup. You don't know how big your crowds are going to be. You don't know which game is going to be on TV, which, where you're going to get extra revenue. Um, so I think everybody suddenly now thinks these are serious. We've got to be very careful. Um, anyway, that'll do for part two. Part three, we'll do AFCON and the Asia Cup. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, Jonathan, let's start with the AFCON. Uh, you are in Abidjan. How is it? It's humid, isn't it? It is astonishingly humid. I mean, maybe I'm just older, but I think this is the most humid couple of nations I've done. The uh, Nigeria-Cameroon game was, uh, yeah, I was absolutely dripping. And yesterday was, I mean, there was no games yesterday, but just walking about was astonishingly humid. And, and does that affect, I know it's mainly about you and how much you're sweating, but in terms of playing, I mean, uh, there's been an interesting mix, hasn't there? There's an interesting talk about, you know, North African sides struggling in sub-Saharan um, climate. But uh, do you think it's impacted the football? Uh, possibly. What, what, what struck me in that Nigeria-Cameroon game was they watered the pitch really heavily, uh, probably, sort of, I don't know, 25, they 30 just, minutes. Did they just take you over the top and just really <laughs> around? <laughs> yeah, there's just a patch of dead grass where the sweat is kind of like, the salt is sort of... 
destroy the earth. Um, but then there seemed to be a very heavy dew came down, which made the pitch very slippy. And if you think of the two goal, or sorry, not the two goals, the the goal that was ruled out and then the the, the first goal, um, both seemed to be because of the slipperiness of the surface. And there's a few players fell over. So I, I was then sort of because I, you know, I'd just come out. That was that was the first game I saw. And I was sort of saying, is this issue of the dew coming down a big issue? People saying, oh, I think it's actually just because they've watered it for so much. So I, I think it affects it in that sense. I think the point you make about North African teams is is probably true. I mean, North African teams historically do not do well in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, there's only Egypt have ever, from, from North Africa, ever won it uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa. Although they had they did do it twice in 2008, 2010, without that great side of one three in a row. Um, so I, I guess that, 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 that makes a difference. They do have cooling breaks after half an hour of each half, which I, I think are very necessary. But it, yeah, it must make a difference. Because I mean, you see the players after sort of two minutes, their, their shirts are absolutely dripping. And you sort of think about that issue. Was it, was it Villa had the problem earlier in the season with the Castore yeah. shirts that, that they, they felt they didn't, didn't wick away the sweat? Well, there's, there's no prizes for not wicking here. You've got, you've got to have wicking shirts. And we're in this astonishing situation where the quarterfinalists in this tournament are entirely different from the quarterfinalists in the last tournament, which is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it, it is. And I, I think it, it, it probably does suggest or does confirm what I've sort of felt for a while, which is I'm not sure the top level of African teams is necessarily getting much better, but I think what is happening is the pyramid is getting a lot wider. So I mean, I remember you know, the first couple of nations I did was 2002, and you had that great Cameroon side with Patrick and Bomber funding, Samuel Eto'o was just coming through, and you had Jeremy and... Yeah, that, that was a yeah, a rigor best song in that team. It was yeah, that was a really good team. The, the, the Senegal team that went on to do very well at that at the World Cup later that year, with El Hadjouf and Salif Jao and Pat Bubajop and Kalu Fadiga. You had the great Nigeria with JJ Kocha and Kanu and Sunday Lise and Tariba West. JJ Kocha, incidentally, I, I bumped into a couple of days ago. He did that really weird thing of kind of I was like, oh, hi, I'm Jonathan. Thinking he probably doesn't remember me from when I interviewed him in 2002. But of course, he didn't. Then he introduced me, oh, hi, I'm, I'm, I'm JJ. So, yeah, I, that's kind of obvious, but yeah, thank you for, for doing that. And I don't think there's any teams here are, are remotely near the level of those teams. But the fact that, yeah, it seems like Angola, who hasn't done particularly well before, Cap Verde, they are playing good football and they, they're there on merit. They haven't done it sort of freakishly. I mean, I guess you could say maybe, maybe DR Congo have done it slightly freakishly and they haven't won a game yet. But fundamentally, you know, the, 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 there is a yeah, South Africa coming back after really being hopeless for sort of 20 years. This is a sort of generally a good sign, I think. I think the level of football this tournament has been much better than the previous Cups of Nations, which is possibly to do with the pitches. I don't think the pitch at the, the big stadium where the final is going to be the Alassane Ouattara, the Abimpe, uh, uh, I don't think that pitch is particularly good, but the other pitches are much better. So I, I think sort of the signs generally are, are encouraging, but maybe there's not a concentration of talent at any one team in the way there was 20 years ago. Yeah. So, so is there a, a standout favourite? We've got Nigeria, Angola, DR Congo, Guinea, Mali, Ivory Coast and Cape Verde, South Africa. Well, I think just because we're at home, Ivory Coast. And yeah, I don't think um, Jean-Louis Gasset, the, the 70-year-old Frenchman who was in charge, I, I don't think he was a good appointment. But I have some sympathy with him in that Ivory Coast looked much better once Sebastian Allo had come on with 20 minutes to go, 18 minutes to go um, against Senegal. And I think the injury that kept him out of the group stage was a big problem for them. And you now sort of think, well, they're at home. Uh, there's this sort of momentum behind them. You know, the local press are calling them Le Revenant. So the, I don't know, the 
the zombies, the, the returners from the dead, uh, because they, you know, they, they were out. And, and then because Zambia couldn't score, they, they, they get this reprieve. And then to be 1-0 down in your last 16 game with four minutes to go, nick it with a penalty, and then win on penalties, there's this sort of sense of, oh, it's, it's, it's predestined, it's meant to be. I think the other interesting thing about that is because they didn't finish top of the group, they're not, they're not staying at the Alassane Watt at the big stadium in, in Abidjan, but they played the last 16 game in, in Yamasukro, and then the quarterfinal is in Bouake. And Bouake was the rebel capital during the Civil War. So I don't know if you remember when Didier Drogba won his African Player of the Year award, one of the things he did was to take the award to Bouake as a sort of gesture of reconciliation. Then he arranged for Ivory Coast to play Madagascar in a couple of nations qualifier there. So they have played there fairly regularly since, I think 10 or a dozen games since. But still, the fact that they're playing in the North, it is this sort of symbolic, the whole country coming together. So I think they probably are the favourites. Uh, then on, on the other side of the draw, Nigeria just look really solid. And Osamen has been so good and Iwobi in midfield has been so good. You sort of think they, they will eventually wear teams down. So it, you know, it should be a Nigeria-Ivory Coast final, but you know, nothing that should have been has been so far in this tournament. Um, meanwhile, the Asia Cup, uh, Paul, you've of course been focusing on this with all the football that is happening. Uh, we, so we have the quarterfinals of Tajikistan versus Jordan, Australia, South Korea, Qatar... Uzbekistan and Iran, Japan. I mean, first of all, how has the tournament been so far, do you think? So this, this is time for my shameless plug again. So I, I run a podcast called The Sweeper with Lee Wingate and we are focused on the the football that people don't talk about as much. So I've I've been watching the Asian Cup because there were quite a few minnows in there that we wanted to keep an eye on. I've actually watched every almost every minute of the tournament at probably great personal cost in terms of my relationships. Um, and it's been one of the most entertaining tournaments I, I've ever seen, to be honest. It's been brilliant. There were four penalty shootouts in the last 16. But beyond that, there were moments of just almost pantomime sort of um, drama, melodrama. So the, the game that really stood out was Iraq versus Jordan. And I don't know how many people have seen this, but um, Jordan obviously... Going into that with the underdogs, Iraq were looking really good. They were warming up and it just looked like maybe this was the time for a sort of dark horse like Iraq to, to go all the way. And then Jordan got in front. The whole team celebrated this goal by uh, sort of miming eating their national dish, which is called mansaf. And there's a way that you eat it ceremonially. Iraq struck back and get back to go 2-1 up. And Ayman Hussein, who scores the goal... Uh, does this huge celebration, goes into stands, he's yelling, as all that. Then he has a second celebration where he comes out on the field, sits down and does a mockery of this mime that the players have done of eating the dish, this mansaf dish. So he's the Neil Mopé. It's Neil a Mopé. It's pure yeah. Mopé. It's pure Mopé. But it's really interesting because like people in the region have said he, he mocks them because of the way he eats the dish. He has his hand on his pelvic bone, I think it's fair, so his pubic bone. So it's clearly, it's meant as a mockery. But the crazy, the, the thing that caused the controversy is the referee then sent him off. It's a second yellow card, sends him off for the celebration being unsporting. Now, some people are saying it's actually the length of time of the celebration that meant he was always going to get a red. Some say it's because culturally it was a really inflammatory gesture. But whichever way, uh, Iraq then go down to 10 men and Jordan hit back, a lot like Spurs against Brentford, um, hit back and go on to win the game 3-2. Um, and Iraq are out unexpectedly, leaving an even bigger controversy because the referee is uh, an Iranian-Australian referee. He's actually pretty famous in Australia. He does a lot of A-League games, uh, Ali Reza Fagani. And so 
there was enormous controversy about this this celebration gate and yeah just it's caused absolute chaos in in that game the the next great point of controversy was Roberto Mancini who is coaching Saudi Arabia and doing a fairly okay job of it but looking a bit half-assed as he does it they played South Korea and took it all the way to penalties which was a pretty decent achievement really South Korea definitely one of the favorites the penalty shootout goes on South Korea are ahead comes to the final spot kick, which South Korea just needs to score to, to win. And Mancini turns and leaves before the spot kick. And this caused absolute outpouring of rage and people calling for him to be sacked. It's seen as disrespect, almost as disrespectful as eating a sandwich, I think, really, to leave before <laughs> the final spot kick. So there were these great moments of absolute chaos. And then also into the mix, you have Tajikistan, who are the only debutants at the competition. They won a penalty shootout against the UAE. And it's a fairy tale story, really, the film to have got this far. They now play Jordan, who no one expected to be there, really, and have this chance to get even to semi-finals for competition. And they have um, a coach called Peter Segert, who is Croatian, a sort of larger-than-life character. And his big thing is he looks just like Einstein. He looks like Albert Einstein, and that's his nickname. <laughs> and he's just, he's just, he's become a national hero. So this tournament has, has gone yeah absolutely above and beyond anything uh, i could hope to have watched uh, and we yeah we we're, we're we're doing a lot of this on the sweeper so yeah at sweeper pod um, you'll hear my ramblings as I watch these games. The winners of Tajikistan, Jordan, play the winners of Australia, South Korea. The winners of Iran, Japan, play the winners of Qatar, Uzbekistan. So to the untrained eye, I'm expecting a Japan, Australia or South Korea final. Am I wrong or am I right? No, that, I think you're right. And um, for all the the craziness of this competition, you know, the the, the uh, underdog stories from from Vietnam and um, Indonesia and all the craziness of the early stages with Japan looking weirdly uh, disjointed. I'd say Japan are the favourites here. Um, South Korea and Australia probably tracking as, as sort of second favourites uh, outside shot of Iran. Um, but the heart says Tajikistan. <laughs> Joa has a question saying, question for Paul, after reading the Football Weekly book, I was wondering many things, but most of all, is there any place on the internet where we can see Paul's Mongolian TV show? Or can this be please, or can this please be part of a live show, either online or in Norway? Um, tell me a little bit more. Tell us more about your Mongolian TV show. Yes, yeah, so I briefly fronted uh, a Mongolian reality TV show to find the best footballers in Mongolia for a new club team. But the crazy thing was the production crew didn't speak any English and I didn't speak any Mongolian. So it was the worst TV show in the history of time. <laughs> well, that, that, that's well, a big don't, show. <laughs> hey, don't say anything, Barry. We've all made bad <laughs> TV shows. Honestly, it, it was... It was it must have been appalling. I, I don't even know because I never saw the final cut. It, it will be out there somewhere and it's waiting, lingering, ready to get me. What uh. I will say is the intro had a picture of, uh, it had a sort of picture of uh, me under some sort of stage lights. And it was saying like, you know, in the background, some narrator saying, this is going to be the greatest team in Mongolian history in Mongolian. And then they must have Google imaged Paul Watson. And there's five or six pictures of Paul Watson that appear, which are not me. <laughs> there are other Paul Watsons, like the one who played for Brighton. There was one in Scotland. None of them were the sea captain, luckily. But they obviously just Google image Paul Watson and then got these random images. <laughs> <laughs> so what did they, what, what, what were you, you were the host? Did they, like, did they say you were sort of a, what were you sold as? What was your kind of? They called me, well, they told me to be like Simon Cowell, except not Great. be mean to anyone. They said, you right. must be like Simon Cowell, English gentleman, like Simon Cowell. 
But yeah, don't be mean to anyone. That really won't go over culturally here. That was the only advice I was given. But the idea was I was the coach of a football team and we were recruiting all our players from this reality TV show, which was amazing because we had kids there who'd never played before, barely, all the way through to like people who were in the national setup who would still come to these tryouts. So it was mayhem. It was total mayhem. But it was, it was a lot of fun. Did you have like a gold buzzer? Did you have like a, you know, you know, what song are you singing for us? We did you? Was there a was there an Amanda Holden next to you? No, there was a there was a really really loud and fierce Mongolian MC who was supposed to translate everything I said, but just said clearly completely different things. And then also the producers had this insistence that they do loads of tasks that meant absolutely nothing. So they'd have them dribble around forty five cones or something, and I'd just sit there and check out. And then all I'd pick it on was the end game that they played against each other because that was the only time you actually saw if they could play football. And so the whole thing was complete padding. Uh, but amazing, we have we have kids come in from the Gobi Desert. They travel from semi nomadic lifestyles in the Gobi Desert to play. And one of them was a goalkeeper. Um, and I thought he wouldn't speak any English. So I was like trying to kind of communicate to him without words. And he's just like, oh, I'm a Chelsea fan. And I was like, what? How do you speak like that? And he's like, I watch Chelsea things all the time. So he's like learned this English accent that's like a Chelsea accent. <laughs> I, was, I thought I'd gone literally out of my mind. I maybe did. <laughs> yeah. So I find, I find how you found all the time to do all the things that you've done. It seems ludicrous. Um, let's finish on this uh, email from Tom in California who says, in the time-honoured tradition of listening to the pod while simultaneously ruining any chance of bearing further offspring, I was caught out by an extraordinary occurrence of bad timing. Being from Reading and living in the States now, the vasectomy started extremely well when the intro mentioned the episode focusing on my hometown club, Reading, which Max has previously admitted feeling literally nothing about. The excitement rapidly turned to no small amount of physical and emotional emotional discomfort at about 40 minutes into both operation and podcast, when the panel began to discuss the plight of my beloved club, hearing about how Di Young is leading the club to ruin while having my tubes snipped and soldered at the ends before being stuffed back into my body and having stitches applied gave the event something of an IMAX-esque 3D cinema-like vibe. As the smoke from aforementioned soldering rose from my undercarriage and Max wrapped up the podcast, I was left with an oddly reassuring feeling that the pod does indeed mirror real life. Uh, thank you, Tom. I hope you're recovering well. Uh, best of luck to you. Best of luck, of course, to Reading, uh, a story which we're keeping our eye on. Well, in, in Reading news, the Ivory Coast coach now who came in after the group stage is, is the former Reading midfielder, MS Fai. Ah. All right. So we, is, that, is that good for Reading? I don't know, but it's about Reading. It is about Reading. And let's face it, none of us know really know anything about Reading. Hence, Reading and Gillingham are the top of the list of football clubs the rest of us are completely indifferent. I think about. when you come out of Reading train station, there's a Weatherspoons on your right and the Hexagon Theatre is on the left, which is where they used to have a snooker tournament but don't anymore. And then you get on a bus and it takes you to the stadium. And when they were sponsored by Waitrose, <laughs> you would get an ice cream at half time if you were covering the game. But I think those days are long, long gone for Reading. Oh, well, hopefully more insight like this when we return <laughs> on Monday. But that'll do for today. Thank you, Wilson. Cheers, thank you. Uh, thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. Thanks, Max. Football Weekly is produced by Silas Gray. Our executive producer is Max Anderson. This is The Guardian.